This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Well, Ukraine has really started taking the war to Russian doorsteps this week, with drone attacks in an affluent area of Moscow, close to a Putin residence, and shelling the Volgorod area inside the Russian border, and another drone attack on a refinery at Novorossiysk on the Black Sea. This after Russia unleashed waves of airstrikes on Kiev in what appeared to be the largest drone attack on the city since the start of the war. We've seen a fair bit of these uh, cross-border operations of late, of course, uh, not only airstrikes, but actual incursions uh, by ground forces. But the increased tempo and the breadth of the attacks seems to suggest that Ukraine is escalating its cross-border operations. We'll be asking whether this is part of preparations for the counteroffensive, which the music coming from Kiev is suggesting could come very soon, or is it part of a wider strategy? So, Saul, what's going on? Well, it could be both, of course. Um, These attacks are quite different, it seems to me. The drone strikes on the Rubliovka district, which is a wealthy suburb of Moscow, where Putin himself has a home, come after an earlier one, if we reported on in the podcast, of course, on the Kremlin itself. They don't really have any military value, but they send a strong psychological message. We can get to you, and what is more, we are prepared to do so, even though you know that the US has not in the past approved of us striking inside Russian territory. The other attacks, one on the Afipsky oil refinery, not far from the Black Sea port of Novorossiysk, near another refinery that has been attacked several times this month, is clearly a straightforward military target designed to mess up Russian logistics prior to the big push. Yes, indeed. And the choice of the Moscow target is telling, isn't it? So uh, this is what uh, Professor Mark Gagliotti pointed out is Moscow's equivalent of Beverly Hills. It's full of oligarchs who, apart from having their assets frozen, have really not suffered any great physical consequences of continuing to support Putin. And the thinking is, I suppose, that this might get them to start changing their minds. There's already been a little bit of indication that that's happening. There was a a tycoon uh, neighbor of Vladimir Putin living in that area, a guy called uh, Viktor Bondarenko, and he was uh, took to Instagram to complain about uh, how he was woken up by loud explosions and saying, uh, my wife suggested we move to the basement, but what if something hit us? I wouldn't want to be buried in a basement. And then he went on, the good thing is the kids are in Milan. Uh, his wife runs a fashion house or something in Milan. And so they were safely out of it. And this predictably caused a storm of um, negative comment from uh, social media users saying it's okay for you, mate. You know, you've got the money to have your kids in abroad and safely out of it. What about the rest of us? So maybe a little bit of um, kind of, you know, political ripples there coming out of that. 
But going back to what you said before, Saul, shortly after those Kremlin drone attacks, we came to the conclusion that it was Ukraine what done it. But Kiev was suggesting that this was a Russian false flag operation to pave the way for ramping up more attacks on Ukrainian cities. But when it's now pretty clear that we were right, U- US intelligence believes that even though Ukraine wasn't claiming it and trying to sort of divert attention away from themselves, their fingerprints are all over it. So this one is almost certainly Ukrainian. And it comes just after the intelligence chief, uh, Kirill Budanov, who is featuring more and more, isn't he, in our reports, uh, warned Moscow uh, after the strikes on Kiev um, that all those who try to intimidate us, dreaming it would have some effect, will regret it very soon. But there are dangers in this new approach, don't you think, Saul? Yes, especially as alongside the drone attacks, there were artillery strikes on the Russian town of Shebekino, about four and a half miles north of the border with Ukraine's Kharkiv region. Two people were hospitalized, homes were damaged, and there was, you know, general carnage, as there always is when uh, you have artillery attacks into a civilian area. Now, so far, Ukraine has very much held the high moral ground in this conflict. But what would have happened if the shells, which clearly were not very accurately aimed, had hit a hospital? There's also a danger that this might have a negative effect in Washington and European capitals, who we understand have been making their point to Zelensky contingent on him restricting military activity to the Ukrainian battle space. Although, of course, there is a little bit of movement on this. We've got both the UK and Germany this week actually saying that they do feel that military strikes on Russian territory are justified in certain circumstances. The Brits basically saying this is part of war uh, and the Germans saying as an act of self-defense. Well, you could argue that when your country is being invaded, any military action is an act of self-defense. So, you know, it mystifies me to be truthful, Patrick, that Ukrainians should be forced to fight with one hand tied behind their back. And it's true that the Russians will be getting some kind of propaganda value out of these attacks, but they're also going to be destabilized by them. There's no question in my mind that Putin himself will have been shaken by these attacks because it gives the lie to the argument that it's just a special military operation inside Ukraine. These are actual attacks on Russian soil that he is not defending very effectively. Otherwise, they wouldn't be taking place. I think actually, interestingly, the partisan attack is probably the most damaging one. And that's the one we reported on last week when you've actually got an incursion across your border, apart from uh, strikes by drones and missiles and and artillery, which of course are difficult to defend against. But when you've got partisans, Russian born, actually coming across the border and no one's doing much about it, that's pretty humiliating. Yeah, I think we'll be talking a little bit more about that later on. But I do sense in all this that we might be seeing a divergence in Kiev over policy uh, with someone like Budanov, he's young, he's charismatic, he's probably quite ambitious, uh, taking a, a harder line and perhaps leading a harder line faction. His rhetoric is certainly uh, pretty harsh in tone, as is some of the official propaganda that we're seeing coming out of Ukraine now. There was a video released the other day, very cinematically done, of soldiers pledging to kill their enemies, reclaim the nation, avenge those who've died, those who've murdered my brothers and raped my sisters, you've got a guy standing there declaiming all this stuff. Um, we don't know much about the internal workings, of course, of the uh, Ukrainian military and political power structures, but it wouldn't surprise me if you are getting a little bit of, of divergence and two camps emerging at this point. But I think we've got to kind of consider quite carefully about 
what effect these attacks have on Russian public opinion, something that it's very hard to gauge. We all know. But I mean, there is a possibility that it could benefit Putin, isn't there? So it adds substance to the fabrications of the Kremlin propaganda machine, which has been telling people that they're fighting a fascist enemy, that the real very existence of the state is at stake. And uh, until now, no one's had any real reason to feel physically threatened. Uh, I mean, it cuts both ways, doesn't it? Although it does bring the war home, it also uh, now makes the point that, uh, yes, we are under attack, particularly in this Volgorod uh, region where children are being evacuated, etc., so if this goes on, uh, perhaps the public will start buying in uh, more enthusiastically to the official attempts to frame this as, um, you know, the great patriotic war round two. Don't you think that's a dangerous war? Uh, possibly. But in reality, Patrick, I think the Russian people have already bought in pretty effectively to the lie that uh, this is existential for Russia. Uh, you know, propaganda has been astonishingly successful. Any of the Russian analysts we we get on this pod have, have all confirmed that, you know, public support for the war is really holding up. I mean, it's not 100%, but it's pretty strong. And people, people have actually bought into this idea already. So the extent to which these cross-border raids and, and strikes are really making a difference, I would doubt. I suspect, in, in my own feeling, Patrick, is that, of course, these are relative pinpricks, uh, certainly compared to the missile and drone attack that Russia is inflicting on Ukraine itself. And and I, what I suspect, I think you're right to um, name check Budinov, because I think this is psyops. This is psychological warfare. They are trying to create a kind of sense of instability and a sense, and this matters to the Russians, that Putin is weak. If he wasn't weak, he'd be doing something about this. Uh, and an extra clue that this might be the case has been uh, the reaction of our old friend, the Wagner chief, Brigosian, who's really castigated the uh, Russian high command and Putin himself for their inability to stop these strikes and these raids. Uh, and he's even gone further than that, actually, in his most recent announcement by saying, you need to start telling Russian people the truth about what's going on in this war, about the fact that we aren't fighting effectively. And at the same time, Patrick, astonishingly, uh, maybe because he's gone way down the track of this you know, extreme criticism of, of Putin and the military high command before. But what he's actually said in the latest announcement is he's praised the Ukrainian army. I mean, it's really hard to believe, isn't it? Saying that's the model of how we should be fighting. Now, we've got an interesting question that addresses this. And, you know, so I'll come back to that later on. But it is interesting that these strikes do seem to be creating even more political instability within Russia. Yeah, and I do think that they're of a piece with the overall counteroffensive strategy you know it keeps the russians guessing multiplying the things they have to think about all the fronts they have to cover and um you know for political purposes that they, they've got to reassure the population along the border and that sort of Kharkiv area border uh, that they are capable of defending them against a major ukrainian incursion and that means deploying troops there and that of course disrupts their plans for defending the the lines inside uh, Ukraine so it's it's quite clever stuff and i still i think we're we're still at the point where in some ways the situation favors the attacker i.e. ukraine it's a bit like d day isn't it if you think of the run up to d day Saul, when the german defenders i mean they're stretched out along a, a massive coastline that goes all the way from the low countries down to western france and so you know, from the spring of 44, they're on, on constant alert. And this this wears you down. I mean, in, in that case, slight difference in that 
they had a bit of respite because tides, etc., and you know weather and things like that did did to some extent dictate the timetable when the Allies could attack. But there are fewer factors in play here. You know, it's, it's an entirely a land war. So in some respects, it seems to me the longer the Ukrainians wait, the more chance there is that the Russians kind of psychologically and indeed physically will be debilitated and the better their chances get. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I do think that that is probably the case. There was an interesting counterpoint made uh, by my brother Tristan, actually, who lives in South Africa, and and he compares the delaying of the Ukrainian counteroffensive and all the stuff that's going on at the moment with with Operation Barbarossa, which of course was launched, as we know, two months late in June. 1941. And the delay undoubtedly contributed to the German failure to take Moscow and possibly defeat the Russians in a single campaign. So he asked the question, are the Ukrainians actually delaying too long? Are they giving the Russians too much time to make their preparations? Well, we don't know for sure. Um, We'll see shortly. I suspect not. They're getting their ducks in a row. Uh, We're still in the shaping phase where they're you know, both the psyops and also the actual material destruction of Russian material is going on uh, and the strike will come soon. Do we have any idea, Patrick, where you think they might attack from? Well, I mean, no no one is letting us know what they're seeing on the other side of the hill. They're not, there must be lots of information about Russian deployments, but a little bit has dribbled out from Western intelligence sources. And that seems to be that the Russians are betting on the push coming in the south. So there's been presumably satellite imagery and all the rest of it showing that they're concentrating their forces in southern Ukraine, which suggests they're expecting a jump off from Kherson area, I suppose, uh, to cut off Crimea. Have you heard any more about that? Uh, no, not in any detail. And I think actually, if uh, if anyone in the Ukrainian army is listening to us speculate about this, they would they would probably suggest that uh, we, we didn't, Patrick. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we're getting little hints where they may go. And you could almost argue that they're very likely to go somewhere completely different. I mean, would the Americans, for example, be releasing this sort of information if it gave the Russians any kind of intelligence? Because they'll be sifting over all of this sort of stuff. So, no, I don't know. The logic tells us, I think, that if this is a one-off strike to try and end the war... They will try and cut the land bridge between Russia and Crimea in some uh, place. And of course, that would mean an attack further south than east, so to speak. So that's our bet for where we think they're going to go. But uh, only time is going to tell. Uh, just to be clear on that, I was, uh, the um, concentration of forces, uh, I'm talking about Russian forces here. So uh, they, it seems from you know what Western intelligence is saying, that they're betting on it coming from the south. So uh, it's not the Ukrainian forces I was talking about, the, but the Russians. So, okay, well, that's all we've got time for. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering listeners' questions. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Well, another great bunch of questions. What an interesting and knowledgeable audience you all are, which makes our job easier as you add so much to the discussion. So do keep them coming. And we're going to start off with a bit of a scoop, actually. Um, now, this comes from a military man. That's all we can say in the Netherlands. He's asked uh, not to be called by name. He works in the Dutch MOD, and he tries to be, as he puts it, a little bit discreet. Uh, I bet he does. And this is what he writes. I wanted to give you a little tip and request uh, to join the Dutch or British MOD on a press visit to one of the Ukrainian training facilities in the UK. In other words, he's suggesting we do that. Um Operation Interflex. He's been involved in communicating the Dutch side of this training, and it's a very interesting way to talk with Ukrainian volunteers and see how they get trained. So he's suggesting we get on and do that, and we'll we'll make some inquiries as to whether that's a possibility. But here's the interesting bit. Um, I wanted to tip you on the following story. Lately, there's been lots of discussion about the possible delivery of F-16s to Ukraine. Uh, we mentioned that last week. I thought it might interest you to know that back in December 2022, the Netherlands closed their F-16 training facility in Tucson, Arizona. The country has now fully moved on to the F-35 program. All the F-16s were supposedly sold to Draken, a company that provides op for in large-scale air force exercises. In a bit of a surprise move, he writes, the aircraft needed more maintenance. All these aircraft were then flown over from the US to Belgium, a weird move since there are plenty of maintenance facilities in the US. Anyway, the aircraft are now in Europe where they are under maintenance. Other chatter, he goes on to say, was that they would be donated to Bulgaria. The broader point he's trying to make with all of this is that the whole chapter is a bit odd, and he thinks lots of people are convinced that these F-16s will go to Ukraine. The Netherlands has been very outspoken and on the forefront in getting the F-16 delivered to Ukraine since the start of the war. And we've got an extra bit of information on that, Patrick, haven't we, from our producer who uh, operates out of The Hague? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the the buzz that uh, James is getting is that uh, the Dutch are pretty keen to send their F-16s, as many see it as retaliation uh, for the Russians shooting down the uh, Dutch passenger plane over the Donbass a few years back. We all remember that. So um, this could be, uh, you know, quite a sort of effective way of getting some payback for that. As we all know, the Russians denied it uphill and down Dale. Uh, so there's still a great deal of justifiable ill feeling uh, in the Netherlands about that incident. So it may be uh, that that is indeed the case. That, that se- se- certainly seems to be uh, where this story is heading. Yeah. And just to be clear about that story, um, of course, they've denied everything. 
there was a feeling that it was probably people in eastern Ukraine who shot it down. Actually, it turns out, and we know this for sure now, Patrick, that it was a, a Russian regular anti-aircraft or at least um, missile battery unit that was sent in to support the Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine that actually knocked that plane out of the sky. So this would be a direct retaliation against Russia uh, and one that in many eyes some would feel was justified. Absolutely. Yeah, it was great work done by Bellingcat on that, you know, the independent investigative outfit. So well done, Bellingcat. Got one here from Justin. He's asking if it's possible that Ukrainians ceded backward to the Wagner forces rather than the Russian army to allow Yevgeny Prigozhin to drive a bigger wedge between his mercenaries and the Russian army, increase the rift between them and, you know, weaken the uh, overall Russian defences. Well, don't know about that, but um, th- there's some news on this, which is uh, very telling, I think. It's just come out in the last day or two, uh, which is that it looks like the Wagner boys are going to be replaced by Kadyrov, the uh, Chechen uh, leader, Ramzan Kadyrov's forces. Uh, this has been pretty well confirmed from Moscow that they're going to move in to take up the space left by the decision of of Prigozhin and Wagner to withdraw, regroup, retrain, etc., having declared victory in Bakhmut. Now, this seems to me to be quite significant, don't you think? I mean, if they are going to be using Kadyrov's troops, they all have very fancy names and they're all meant to be special forces and highly trained and all the rest of it. Well, you know, we'll see about that. But, you know, if it's the case that they are being used to plug the gap left by Wagner, it doesn't really bode well for the Russians, does it? They have to rely on a a private army, essentially, uh, from a guy who, uh, by any standards, I think is pretty unbalanced, to um, replace a mercenary group. What does that tell you about the capacity of, of Russia's supposedly official sovereign forces. Um, and it also risks boosting Kadyrov, doesn't it, who's a bit of a wild card and could present political problems for Putin in the future. So this doesn't sound like the move of a confident commander, does it? No, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? We've, we've speculated on this before as to whether or not the Chechens and, and the Wagner group are the only really effective forces that Putin has left, because if they are not, then there is no logic to, as you say, Patrick, the political capital that both Kadyrov and Prigozhin are getting by effectively taking the the best roles for their men while the Russian regular army is on the sidelines. So extraordinary developments there. Moving on to a question from Ed from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I'd just like your feedback on a point of strategy, and it concerns overall objectives for the upcoming offensive. What he's saying is Ukrainian forces must target Mother Russia itself in the upcoming offensive in order to have a much better bargaining position in the wake of the offensive. What are your thoughts? Well, our thoughts, Ed, are that they are very happy to disrupt behind the lines with missile strikes and artillery strikes. But do we think that Ukrainian troops are going to attack Russian soil? No, we do not. Uh, There may be more partisan attacks. I think that's very likely. uh, But of course, they will be Russian-born partisans. uh, And therefore, you can get around this problem that America still, and we mentioned this at the top of the episode, America still does not want the the battle to be taken to Russia itself for reasons of not escalating this issue further. And one important point to make on that is that Russia's justification for using tactical nuclear weapons is in defense of its own soil. Um, Of course, that argument's been extended to the provinces that it now claims are Russian soil. But of course, in reality, you know, 
what was Russian before the start of this war, um, uh, you know, may easily be a deal breaker. So we don't feel that there are going to be Ukrainian boots on Russian soil. We think that the intention is to recover all of what would have been considered to be sovereign Ukraine prior to 2014. Ben Noble from Preston sort of pursues that point a bit further, asking us really, in, in essence, what do we know about these Russian units that are, are carrying out these operations? Well, the answer is really uh, not much. We only know what they're telling us themselves. There was a story in the Times, I think, yesterday, which was an interview with a guy called uh, Maximilian Andronikov, who's meant to be the leader of the Free Russia Legion. Uh, there's two outfits there that we know about, the Free Russia Legion and the Russian Volunteer Corps, both of whom say their aims are noble. They're trying to overthrow Putin's tyrannical regime, etc., starting off by liberating border areas, but claiming they will eventually be marching on Moscow. It all seems rather grandiose, uh, given that we don't really know much about these people at all. But they do claim to have um, stinger, you know, they have pretty sophisticated kit, they're claiming. Uh, stingers, anti-tank weapons. Uh, they're claiming they fund these themselves and buy them on the o- open market. The questioner, Ben, is, is asking, well, do, do they actually have NATO weapons? Do we know? Well, some of the things that Andronikov is talking about uh, do sound like sort of NATO kit. So again, it's all, it's all very murky, really. The other question is, you know, whether they're actually, how much independence have they got? Are they essentially operating a bit like Wagner or are they under uh, Ukrainian armed forces control? They say that they're under Ukrainian armed forces control, the the actual relationship is a bit unclear, isn't it? Do you know any more about that, Saul? Well, they are almost certainly operating under Ukrainian military intelligence, which, of course, has multiple roles. Uh, We've already been talking about PSYOPs. I mean, these guys have also suggested that the next time they go into Russia, and it will almost certainly coincide with the Ukrainian counteroffensive, they're going to go there to stay. They're going to create a little statelet, presumably relatively close to the Ukrainian border. uh, And they are going to hope that patriots will flock to join them there. And that ultimately, this is going to lead to a revolution, a civil war in Russia. And the overthrow of Putin. That's their stated aim. So we'll have to wait and see. But certainly, they are inevitably going to be quite useful for the Ukrainians, because there's this deniability that Ukrainians themselves are taking the war into Russia, but they're allowing Russians to do the job for them, as I've just suggested. I've got a question here from Joe in Bristol that I'd like to address. He's asking about the legality of taking out leaders, uh, national leaders. And he's, of course, has in mind the drone attack we were talking about earlier on the Kremlin, which uh, the Russians claimed was an attempt by the Ukrainians to assassinate Putin. Uh, he, he's asking, uh, does the, what, what does the Geneva Convention say about this? Is it actually legal under those terms to target uh, someone like Putin or indeed someone like Zelensky? Well, um, this is something that's a very, very confused area. The Geneva Conventions do say that it, it is uh, lawful for a soldier to take out another soldier on or off the battlefield if that if the target is actually someone who's directly participating in the hostilities. Uh, it becomes less justifiable, according to the Geneva Conventions, if it's a non-soldier who's doing this, someone like a CIA agent, which brings us on to the kind of American position. It seems largely to be a matter of self-regulation. So after uh, it was revealed back in 1977 that the CIA had been planning to kill Fidel Castro, the then president, Gerald Ford, 
issued an executive order which prohibited people like the CIA from engaging in or conspiring to engage in political assassination. And um, that ruling, that executive order, has been upheld by all subsequent administrations. But even that's sort of a bit unclear. Clearly doesn't extend to military leaders off the battlefield. I'm thinking of uh, you know the fairly recent U.S. assassination of Major General Qasem uh, Soleimani, of the the Revolutionary Guards uh, leader. He was uh, taken out in Baghdad in 2020. So I think that insofar as one can come to a conclusion here is that there's plenty of kind of authorities out there that you could reach out to to defend your decision to go after Putin or indeed to go after Zelensky. So um, I think neither side will have any problem in their own minds of justifying their actions if they succeed in, in either case. No, I mean, as a point of international law, Patrick, I think it really hinges on whether or not the the commander in chief, in inverted commas, is uh, titular or actual. Uh, You know, what what we've really got here is a question of whether or not that person, that head of state, uh, is an active combatant in the war. Now, he doesn't actually have to be on the front line, of course, to be a combatant, but he does have to be someone who is directing operations to a certain extent. And you could say that Hitler in the Second World War absolutely was that person. He was at uh, the military command post and he was making decisions that affected the movement of armies and the war overall. You can, of course, have a, a military leader who is a sort of technical commander in chief, but is not actually directing armies. Um, and probably, uh, you know, the president, well, probably both presidents actually in Ukraine and Russia would fit that category, although we suspect that Putin's been much more involved uh, in the actual war. Uh, than not. Of course, there are legal niceties and there are what people are prepared to do. You've already referenced the uh, Israelis, uh, well known for political assassinations. Uh, And there's no doubt in my mind that both sides in this war would be prepared to take out the opposing uh, president if they could, uh, if they were able to do so. So is one thing there being legal niceties. There's another thing is whether or not the military are actually prepared to do it. And I suspect both are. Yeah. In the case of Hitler, of course, he had more to fear from his own uh, military than he did (laughs) from anyone else's. uh, Now, Simon in the Netherlands has uh, raised an interesting question. He says, do you think that conditions could perhaps arise where Wagner PMC would switch sides? I know it sounds incredibly far-fetched, he says, but Prigozhin must know that he won't have a bright future inside Russia uh, beyond the end of the conflict. And being the opportunist he is, surely he would try to position himself in a way that is most beneficial to him, even if that means surrender to the Ukrainians. You're right, Simon, it does sound a little far-fetched, though I don't think we can entirely rule it out. I'm thinking of that video you mentioned earlier, Saul, uh, Prigozhin's video filmed in Bakhmut where he declares victory. But very surprisingly, he starts to pay these compliments to the Ukrainian forces and Zelensky himself and says uh, of the Ukrainian armed forces, you will become the second strongest army in the world after the Wagner group, of course. So, you know, you can look at it one way and say, well, he's trying to position himself as an honorable enemy. You know, he does have these delusions that he's a sort of great warrior and a great warrior tradition. But it's also worth considering that he might be thinking about switching sides if things get sticky for him, maybe joining up with these uh, Free Russia Legion and Russian Volunteer Corps and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, you know, this part of the world history shows us there are lots of examples of all sorts of strange alliances. So you can't really rule anything out. 
Okay, we've got a question here from Charles. Uh, he says, you mentioned that some military historians are reviewing Russia's contribution to the Second World War as less decisive, with the US material becoming more important. And on the show, you often talk about the role of economics within military history. I'm off to the LSE to do economic history next year before heading to Sandhurst. And he finds this economic military intersection very interesting. I was wondering, says Charles, could you suggest any books or academics to focus on this question? Well, yes, we can, because our old friend Phil O'Brien, who's Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St. Andrews, has written a book you really need to read, Charles, and it's called How the War Was Won. Um, and this is really an assessment of the sort of economic might and also air power, air and sea power, that America was ultimately able to bring to the battlefield, both in the Pacific and also, of course, importantly, in Europe. And and Phil makes the broad point that really when you break everything down to economics, the key contribution was made by America and not Russia. In fact, he goes further than that and says that, yes, of course, a lot of uh, Germans were killed fighting on the Eastern Front, but this gets back to the classic argument about is it, you know, body bags that wins or loses war? Not in Phil's mind. It's, it's economic might. Uh, not only did America shore up Russia and make it possible for them to fight the Germans, but also they forced, partly by the uh, the air war against Germany, the strategic bombing campaign, they forced the Germans to really devote so many of their resources to both planes but also anti-aircraft fire that this materially affected their ability to fight on the Eastern Front. And there's some really interesting statistics in that book. So have a look at that. And also he references a lot of other scholars who are working in a similar field. Yeah, it's a fascinating area, this, isn't it, Saul? I mean, uh, economic might might help you to win the war, but it doesn't necessarily result in you willing, winning the peace. I'm thinking, of course, of Great Britain, uh, which exhausted itself really economically in the Second World War. There's a book by Corelli Barnett, uh, The Audit of War, which makes this point that you know, Britain's post-war decline was essentially a consequence of um, wearing itself out economically in the Second World War. And of course, the paradox is that Germany, which um, was basically you know, deconstructed uh, industrially by the uh, Allied strategic bombing campaign, then sort of emerges from the ashes to become the sort of powerhouse of um, post-war European economics. Of course, America did very well uh, out of the Second World War. The uh, victory was followed by an economic boom. So the picture is very mixed, isn't it? But it is a fascinating topic. Okay, quick one here from Michael Howard um, in Tampere, Finland. We've we've heard from Michael before. I recently decided to donate to a group called Your Finnish Friends, who use the money to supply ex-army Finnish troops fighting in Ukraine directly with equipment and supplies. The website is www.yourfinnishfriends.org. I feel this is the best way to assure that these men and women come home alive. Are there any organizations like this in your target audiences, countries who do similar work? As some listeners may feel more comfortable donating to military personnel from within their own countries, helping with the war effort in Ukraine. Well, I've had a quick look about whether or not there's anything available uh, to support British servicemen. And I, personally, Patrick, I can't see anything. I mean, there are all kinds of websites that suggest how you can contribute both in a humanitarian sense and also in a military sense to what's going on in Ukraine. And we mentioned a number of those websites before. And of course, you can you know, do a quick Google search yourself. There doesn't seem to be anything that's specifically supporting British servicemen, possibly because they're fighting in um, a number of kind of disparate groups. Some of them are fighting for the Foreign Legion. We even mentioned, of course, that they're fighting 
in the Georgian Legion uh, a couple of weeks ago. So not that I can see Michael, but if any other listeners would like to contact us with websites that can support your own nationalities fighting in Ukraine, please do so. All right, we've got an interesting question on the F-16 issue from John in UK. Uh, and he says that in all the commentary about this, a notable factor is Biden's Damascene policy reversal and indeed his confidence in Russia not escalating the war into the nuclear sphere in retaliation. Now, he acknowledges that we mentioned that uh, in last week's podcast. A possible reason for this, says John, that he'd not, he's not seen elsewhere is the policy switch soon after the success of Patriot in bringing down uh, the Kinzel hypersonic missiles. Confidence in Russia not using at least tactical nukes must be well-founded in the light of this. Russia almost certainly must know they'd get shot down. Well, it's a really interesting point. And is is it a coincidence? You know, it might not be. Um, It's interesting that as those missiles were being shot down for the first time and it was being reported in the press, I actually attended a, a, a naval special forces conference in Portsmouth. This was actually a NATO naval special forces conference at which they spoke about this. And they said, not so much in the nuclear sphere, but certainly in the sphere that the missiles could pose a threat to NATO ships in the future. This was hugely heartening for them. And the overall impression I was getting from them is this kind of sense of confidence that uh, NATO could deal with these hypersonic missiles and that in their minds, certainly in strategic terms, this was a big game changer. So it may, it's just possible it played a bit of a factor in the F-16 debate. Okay, well, that's um, enough for us for one week. Do listen out for the Wednesday big interview, and we'll be back again next Friday for another look at the news and analysis of what's going on. Do join us. Bye.